The Tom Woods Show, episode 1609. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. No matter who you are, this message is directed at you. You're overwhelmed with email. You don't know how to handle it. You can never stay on top of it. What do you do? You use SaneBox, which will help manage your email and get you your sanity back. Visit SaneBox.com slash Woods today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X.com slash Woods. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here. Very glad to welcome Gareth Porter back to the show. Gareth Porter has just an extraordinary record as a journalist and as an author and as a truth teller, frankly, over many, many years. And I want to talk today about his new book, co-authored new book, talk about that, called The CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis, From CIA Coup to the Brink of War. Because we all know that Iran has been the enemy. As, as enemies have come and gone, Iran in the background has been an enemy of the U.S. Uh, regime. And I want to know how that came about. Yes, I know there was the hostage crisis, but obviously it goes beyond just that. How did that happen? And then we want to take that through to the controversy about the alleged Iranian nuclear program today. So, Gareth, welcome back. Good morning, Tom. Glad to be back on your show. Thanks. Well, that is quite a uh, uh, that's quite a clever title. I like the CIA Insider's Guide <laughs> to the Iran Crisis. That's just great. And what matters to me more than the title, though, is seeing your name on the cover because I see your name and I know I want to read it. Well, thank you very much. That's very kind of you. <laughs> well, my, my pleasure. Now, you have a lot of documents as appendices in this right. book. So, even, But even with the documents, this is very digestible. This is not going to take you forever to read. And I think an informed person really needs to read this material because, for heaven's sake, the prospect of war with Iran has been flaring up for three presidencies. I mean, for all I know, I mean, maybe even Bill Clinton had some thought about it, but I don't yep. remember remember that. But I do recall very distinctly thinking that even under George W. Bush, there might be war with Iran. And then sure. in those days, there was a big intelligence report, I think in December 2007, that really stopped him in his tracks. But mm -hmm. it's been, you know, so as an American, you've, you've got to know this material. I guess Given that you know, we're talking for about a half an hour, I want to pace ourselves appropriately. So I don't want to spend too much time on the CIA coup portion because I have discussed that on the program in the past. But let me ask you this. A lot of uh, critics of American foreign policy, particularly critics of the bellicosity toward Iran, will say that Americans act as if history began yesterday and they, they neglect to mention that there was CIA intervention in 1953 in Iran. Yep. But the response to that might well be, okay, maybe, but they weren't overthrowing you know, an Islamic extremist in those days. So that doesn't really explain why there would be such an Islamic resurgence, an Islamic resentment against the U.S. So what's the answer there? Well, that, that's an interesting point that, um, you know, the Islamic part of the U.S. sort of belligerence, if you will, in the Middle East is a more recent phenomenon. No question about that. In the 1950s, the U.S. interventionism was really not against uh, Islamic extremism or Islamics at all, but it was against nationalism. It was against Middle Eastern nationalism. And Mohammed Mossadegh, then the democratically elected prime minister of Iran was the perfect example of that broader problem in U.S. 
belligerency in the Middle East during the 1950s. But of course, it went well beyond that. The CIA was involved in a whole series of coups or attempted coups throughout the Middle East. They wanted to get rid of, well, they did try to carry out coups against uh, elected government in uh, Syria. Uh, they wanted to, or the, the British wanted them to help overthrow Nasser in Egypt, although that never happened. Uh, but but this was a broader phenomenon, obviously, uh, during the Eisenhower era, when the, the uh, United States government was not using military force to try to overthrow governments, uh, but rather using the CIA. Uh, so so it, it was a very different phenomenon, but no less troubling in terms of the implications going deep into the uh, the problem of, of U.S. Uh, interventionism. You know, chapter two is on how Iran became the enemy. And that chapter two, I think, has a title that itself could be a standalone book, How Iran Became the Enemy, right. it, the way it's been demonized. Now, of course, I wouldn't want to live under the Iranian regime. I'm not saying these are wonderful people. I, I'm not. That's completely irrelevant. What I want to know is what is it that makes it impossible for the U.S. regime to negotiate with it, to coexist with it. Of course, we have the history of the hostage situation 40 years ago now. But is that still what the problem is? I mean, what, what are the, I mean, I don't know. What, I guess I'm asking you two questions. What's the officially stated reason for the hostility? And what do you think is the real reason? Well, that's, a, that's exactly the right way to formulate the, the, the problem, I think. The officially stated reason is a combination, has been for some years now, quite a few years, a combination of um, what is called malign activities by the Iranians, meaning that they have had, uh, they've carved out positions of influence throughout the um, Middle East, greater Middle East, really, by having allies in, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, uh, and now in Yemen, and then the other side of the equation is terrorism, that, that Iran is the world's greatest uh, or, or biggest state sponsor of terrorism. So I, I think that's, that's sort of the double whammy that is thrown at that Iran and has been at least since the Bush administration, I would say. And, and I think both of those parts of the equation are are false. Uh, you, you'll notice that I didn't actually mention the nuclear program because that is that that is not part of the the verbal propaganda that that is up front the most. That is in the background of this always, and I know we'll come back to that. But it's really the terrorist activities that seem to be in the forefront most of the time. And and I would argue, and I do argue with John Kiriakou in this book that that uh, both of those are really equally false. That, first of all, if you look at what we're talking about really uh, in, in what they call malign activities, it's the reality that since the late 1990s, really coinciding with the period of intense U.S. interventionism in the Middle East, Iran has had uh, opportunities aplenty to take advantage of its uh, Shia allies and allies that are not Shia but are but have interests that that are uh, similar to those of of Iran to use those ties to advance its security interests and uh, I think that one of the great uh, contributions of this book perhaps the most important one of all in my view 
is the section that that explains how uh, the Iranians have actually been uh, using those ties to essentially create the only kind of deterrent that they have a possibility of creating. That is a deterrent to attack by Israel or the United States against Iran's uh, territory, uh, because Iran has never really had an adequate ballistic missile deterrent. Its ballistic missiles have either been uh, short uh, in terms of the range or inaccurate and thus unable to hit military targets, or they've been too few of them or a combination of all three. And so uh, basically since 1999, I show in this uh, essay, this part of the essay, that Iran has been using particularly its ties with Hezbollah in Lebanon, but then more recently with Syria and with Iraq and with the Houthis in Yemen to have additional deterrent forces uh, that can be used, that is rockets or missiles that can be used to retaliate if the United States or Israel were to attack Iran. And it's because of those additional retaliatory capabilities that they have set up over these years that they now have been able to have relative, a relatively sound deterrent to particularly the Israelis. Because really for the first time since 2006, the Israelis have been deterred. They are not going to uh, attack either Hezbollah or Iran for the foreseeable future because of this deterrent. But that is really the secret behind this whole notion of malign activities. That is, the, that is 99% of the reason why Iran has been involved in all these countries in the Middle East. Before we proceed, can you tell me something about your co-author? I was not familiar with him. Well, John Kiriakou is um, the former CIA official. He was actually uh, best known for the fact that he basically gave the names of CIA officials who were involved in the torture program to people in the press. And he was then accused and actually convicted of uh, having violated the, the 1917 uh, Espionage Act, the Anti-Espionage Act, which, of course, has been the uh, the act of choice in getting at whistleblowers in the national security arena. And so he spent, uh, I think, roughly two years in uh, federal prison for his uh, whistleblowing and has been out now for a few years. And uh, uh, he has basically been uh, had a hard time finding a job because of his uh, legal status. He's, he's asked for a pardon but hasn't gotten one. But he also was a relatively high official in the CIA before he quit in 2004 for personal reasons, because he had uh, kids in, uh, who were living in the Midwest, and he had to come back every weekend or every other weekend at 3.15 a.m. in the morning and sit at his desk. And, uh, and he was asking for a break uh, to be able to visit with his kids, um, and they wouldn't allow that, and so he quit the CIA. But he's a very smart guy. He's a, a very principled person, and uh, I'm glad to have him as a co-author and a friend. All right. Now, of course, I want to get to the topic you know, around which uh, practically all discussion of Iran uh, has revolved in recent years, and we'll do that after this quick break. Folks, tell me if you can relate to this. Email is a soul-crushing distraction for you, and it 
causes you anxiety when you can't keep up with it. And at the end of the day, you know you have more email you haven't gotten to. And then the next day, it just gets worse and you don't know how to get a handle on it. SaneBox's artificial intelligence monitors your inbox. Automatically, knucklehead email is moved to your Sane Later folder. All that's left is the important stuff. If you know how email folders work, then you know how SaneBox works. Find an email in the wrong folder, just move it. Nothing to learn, nothing to install. SaneBox works directly with every single email server or service that has ever been created. It also has neat features like the Sane Black Hole, where you can drag messages from annoying people you never want to hear from again and sane reminders to ping you if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com woods today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot woods. All right, obviously people are interested in the question of Iran's nuclear program, and this is a very, very, for me, difficult issue to... to to get straight, because it's like when people ask me about my opinion of the Kennedy assassination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To have an informed opinion on this, there are 25 books I'd have to read for starters, and I just feel like I have only one lifetime. I'm not going to devote it to 25 books on the Kennedy assassination. Well, likewise here, you hear so many conflicting reports. that I, I hear uh, people saying the Iran nuclear deal was great. I hear people saying it was a disaster. I hear libertarians saying it was great. I hear left liberals saying it was great. I hear some uh, some people, you know, all that. And then I hear people saying, oh, the Iranians weren't living up to it. I hear reports about the, the IAEA saying, even they saying that, you know, Iran needs to be more cooperative. So I don't know what on God's green earth I am supposed to think about any of this. My inclination is in the direction of it was a good deal and it's too bad that uh, it was set aside. But that's about it. So I need you to take some time to fill in the blanks for us, please. Right. Well, uh, first of all, let me just uh, comment on the deal itself as a kind of introduction to the subject. Uh, my, my view of the uh, joint, uh, the joint uh, plan, if you will, uh, the JCPOA, is that, yes, it was something that needed to be signed once, it, once the process started. It needed to be signed and it needed to be kept. But there, but there was a flaw at the center of it. The problem is that it, it's not the flaw that the uh, the Trump administration and its supporters claim. The flaw in it is that the Obama administration had bought into the whole idea that the only way to get along with Iran, the only way to have a, a relationship with Iran that uh, was safe for the United States was to force Iran into this deal by the the pressure of sanctions and the threat of war. Now, the threat of war was not U.S. war, but it was Israel. The, the Obama administration was essentially exploiting the threat that Netanyahu had been making for years against uh, Iran, that, that uh, the Israelis were prepared to attack unless the, Iran's, the Iranians caved in on the nuclear issue. But essentially, the Obama administration was depending on heavy coercive diplomacy, which is what they called it, that's the way they thought of it, to get the Iranians to sign on to this deal. And uh, in the in the book, uh, the, the argument is, is laid out here that, in fact, what happened was not that the Iranians were uh, coerced by Obama as much as that they had their own interest in reaching this deal so that they could end the sanctions that had been uh, levied against Iran's economy all the way back to the Clinton administration in the 1990s. 
they wanted to use this process, this diplomatic process, to try to end the the extraordinary pressures, economic pressures that had been applied to Iran for so long. And they thought that by having a nuclear deal, they would satisfy the United States once and for all, and they could now rejoin uh, the rest of the world's economy, the world economy. But of course, we we now know what happened. Uh, the, the, the Obama administration had its day, but then Trump took over and an, a totally different point of view, which was violently anti-Iranian and had no desire to live in peace with Iran at all, essentially became the basis for U.S. policy. So, I, you know, this, this um, analysis that I've just laid out is, in a way, the end point, or not the end point, but near the end point, of a much longer analysis that goes all the way back to the beginning of the Iranian nuclear program and, and basically explains how horribly wrong the entire U.S. official approach to this subject has been, how one administration after another uh, and the U.S. intelligence community have simply gotten the entire Iranian uh, nuclear program issue wrong from the start. It starts with the fact that the Reagan administration during the Iran-Iraq war was, of course, supporting Iraq. They were supporting Saddam Hussein's uh, effort to get into Iran, to take down the regime. And when that failed and the Iranians went on the counteroffensive, then there was panic in Washington. The Reagan administration said, well, we've got to do everything we can to assist uh, the Saddam Hussein regime to fight back. And part of that then was to announce that the United States is going to forbid Iran from having a peaceful nuclear program. And of course, this was a program that they inherited from the Shah, right? This was the the program that the uh, United States government uh, during the Nixon administration was all in for. I mean, we thought it was great. Um, And then suddenly, as soon as the Islamic Republic was formed, uh, the the scene shifted and the United States was no longer in favor of it. And uh, it, it was a way of punishing Iran, essentially. And in fact, uh, you know, I, in, in my previous book, in the uh, Manufactured Crisis book, I, I mentioned the fact that McFarlane, who was the national security advisor uh, during the Reagan administration, told me personally, uh, more recently, that that they never considered the potential consequences of this decision in the Reagan administration to tell Iran that it could not have a a nuclear program, which was that, you know, essentially the Iranians would go underground. They would go to the black market to get the ability to have their own nuclear, their, their own enrichment program, which they had not planned originally. They had planned to have, to get their enriched uranium from a French consortium And uh, instead of doing that, they were forced to have their own enrichment program or to give it up completely, which was not acceptable to these extremely nationalist Iranians. And so that was the beginning of this dynamic that we see played out during the 1980s and 1990s, where as soon as the Iranians go to the black market to get the enrichment uh, facility or the, the enrichment technology, then the U.S. government accuses them of wanting nuclear weapons. And uh, there's no evidence whatsoever that that's the case. And in fact, in, in this book, I tell the story 
that I got uh, from an interview with the wartime, that is the Iran-Iraq wartime minister of SEPA, the minister of, of armaments uh, during the Iran-Iraq war, about his meetings with the supreme leader Khomeini, in which he was asking Khomeini to approve a set of programs of weapons of mass destruction, including chemical weapons, biological weapons, and nuclear weapons. And Khomeini said, absolutely not. This is illegal. We cannot have this in a Shiite government. It's against all Islamic law. And so uh, they never did it. They never had any weapons of mass destruction because of Khomeini. And it was continued under his successor, Khamenei, uh, in the 1980s, 1990s, and and beyond. So uh, essentially, Iran is the only a state in the history of humankind that has refused to have weapons of mass destruction on religious grounds. But nobody will pay any attention to this because of the pressure of this uh, relentless propaganda campaign that has been unfolding ever since the 1980s, 1990s. Um, and, and it's continued up to the present time, layer upon layer of propaganda about how Iran is doing all these suspicious things. Without getting into details uh, in this interview, because we don't have the time, I can tell you that everything that you have read in the news media on this subject has been simply wrong because the news media has not been covering the facts. They have been covering what they've been told by U.S. officials and not actually covering the actual documents that are available to them through the inter, uh, the, the uh, IAEA, the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, and its reports. And if you do actually read those reports carefully, what you find is that the IAEA never found any evidence suggesting that Iran was indulging in a secret nuclear weapons program, although they ultimately did buy into a set of documents, which uh, I show in the book was uh, uh, fabricated. Uh, these were fabricated documents. So these are the documents that were announced or released somewhere around April 2018? Well, there are two sets of them. Uh, you know, this is a little bit more complicated. The, the first set was actually, uh, it, it suddenly materialized in 2004. And uh, for a long time, there was a mystery surrounding where they came from, how they arrived in the hands of U.S. intelligence, and there were stories about uh, a scientist or an engineer, an Iranian, who had been part of the program, a secret nuclear weapons program in Iran, who secreted these documents on a laptop computer, or his wife did, out of the country. And then there was a story about a businessman who had become a spy for German intelligence, and he got them out. Both of those turned out to be lies. And I interviewed the former uh, foreign office official who had been in charge of North American affairs in 2013, on the record, Karsten Voigt, uh, the former German official, told me that he had been brought in by German intelligence officials in 2004 who told him that they knew all about these documents. They had gotten them from a member of the Mujahideen Ikalk, the MEK, which is this terrorist organization that had been working for Saddam Hussein against the Iranian regime during the Iran-Iraq war, and then went to work for the Israelis against Iran. And they, the German intelligence absolutely did not trust the guy because he was MEK, and they, they warned the CIA that these documents should not be relied upon 
but they went ahead and did it anyway, apparently, because they were accepted as evidence by the Bush administration that Iran was, in fact, going for a secret uh, nuclear weapons program. So that was the first set of documents. And, and I show that there are many indications, uh, several indications, uh, that these are fabricated because they have information in them that is at odds with uh, information that we can verify from objective sources uh, that we know are accurate. So that was the first set. Then the second set is the one that you've just referred to when Netanyahu told the story and had a big slideshow of how Mossad stole a half a ton of Iranian nuclear documents from a nuclear archive from a warehouse in central uh, Tehran. And, uh, and in fact, uh, if you look closely, as I have, at what is in these documents, some of them are the same ones that were in the original collection, and they're equally fraudulent. And so, uh, you know, the whole thing stinks. It, it's just, it doesn't, it doesn't add up. Uh, that's the short version of it. And I can go into more detail if we have time. Well, let, let's try and just to fill out the whole discussion. And, we, you know, we, we touch on a little bit of each thing. Of course, what people should do and the idea behind this is to whet their appetites that they go and yeah. read this. And I know people think I have a lot of books that I have to read already. But the beauty of this one, as I said, is it can be digested fairly quickly and it's a good resource to have on hand. Well, you're right, Tom. I mean, I like this. I like this book for one reason. It is short. It's the first time that I've done a book that is short, six chapters, uh, each one much shorter than the usual chapter. And so it is digestible. It really is. I, I like that fact. Can we I, I want to take you a little bit outside your comfort zone, which is history, facts, journalism and make you a prognosticator. And yeah. not, not, maybe not a prognosticator. I'm not really asking you to predict how this will turn out, but can you describe for me, let's say even just a remotely plausible scenario in which both sides begin to stand down and some kind of sanity gets restored to the relationship? What would that look like? Yeah, yes, I can. I can think of a scenario in which that would happen. I don't know how likely it is. I'm afraid it isn't very likely, but the scenario is, that uh, Donald Trump picks a new national security advisor who has uh, his wits together, his or her wits together, but it's going to be somebody who has been looking at this problem from a different angle and who understands that, that in order to have peace with Iran, the U.S. government is going to have to back off the all-out hostility that it is now sort of hooked into with regard to its Iran policy. That is a possibility. Uh, you know, we have seen Donald Trump over the last year refuse repeatedly to carry out military actions that his advisors, particularly John Bolton and, and Mike Pompeo, have been urging on him. And in so doing, he has indicated that he does have a, a much different perspective on the problem from the Let's face it. I mean, these are these are people who uh, are warmongers. They they would prefer to have a military confrontation with Iran for reasons which are really not in the interest of the United States. Um, and and so there there is a degree of hope here that Trump can somehow find a person who would in fact be uh, giving him advice on how to get out of this situation. It is possible to do it diplomatically, politically, but he doesn't have a clue at this point. He needs somebody to tell him how to do that. 
Now, you know, I hope that will happen either before the election or after the election. But I am afraid that, you know, the the odds at this point seem to me to be against it. But that's that's the scenario that I would see as a way of uh, uh, at least a, a possibility of getting out of of what is otherwise a path to real military confrontation with with Iran, because Iran uh, at this point, as I see it, does not have a viable option other than to do something uh, to to uh, provoke a confrontation with the United States because of the all-out pressure on the Iranian economy that the Trump administration has has been waging. That is to say, the uh, the the policy of taking away Iran's its its customers for its for its oil. That is to say, essentially uh, sanctioning uh, seven or eight, I think it's seven countries that have been regular customers of Iran for many years now, and essentially taking away 60% of their national budget. Iran cannot continue for very long to allow this to happen. And so they must, they must, in fact, I believe very strongly, they must respond. And the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, as everyone knows by now, who's listening to your show, I'm sure, has more power than they ever have had before, more influence in, uh, in Iranian policy. So if Trump were to be reelected, I see that there is a very grave danger that we we would have a confrontation because the IRGC needs to push the United States into a situation where they must make a decision about changing its policy or to consider changing its policy. It's such a shame because Trump was uniquely positioned to change things if he had really wanted to. Now, he signaled quite clearly in the campaign that he was going to chuck the nuclear deal. So I didn't have real hopes right, for this. Right. But the idea, of course, it's, you know, obviously it's the hackneyed example of Nixon going to China. Mm-hmm. You can get away with it because your people know him as a tough guy and he's a Republican. So they'll get the Republican sheep to go along with it because a Republican is doing it. Whereas if Joe Biden Absolutely. tries that's to do it, yeah. you, that, you, that know, you know what will happen. Advantage. That that's because because he is a a right wing Republican or or at least he's perceived as that he can get away with making a deal with Iran. I, I agree with you on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And unfortunately, whereas if Bernie or Biden, because most people are not making subtle distinctions, realizing Biden is just as much part of the war party <laughs> as anybody else, but they'll say, oh, it's the it's the liberal Democrats and they're always hating America and and they blame America first and all this. And you just won't be able to get anywhere. So they won't try is the thing. They won't even try. Well, I, I think that that there would be actually I, I do believe that whether it's Biden or or Bernie and, and were they to be elected, uh, either one of them, I think that they would go back to the deal. Yeah. You know what? Uh, now that I say that, now that I say that, I actually think I did overstate that yeah. uh, because I, I get so frustrated with the bipartisan war party that I think in that case I was prone to exaggeration. I actually do think <laughs> that there would be some change in that case. That's true. That would be one silver lining of either of these people. And of course, Biden has it. That's part of the Obama legacy, pr- presumably, right. right? I mean, that is something that that he would presumably want to maintain. There, there's no way that he would not go, go, go back to the agreement. Now, it, it's very possible that because of the pressure from the right, 
Biden would give in and make demands on Iran and start a new diplomatic process. I wouldn't rule that out. I think in the case of Bernie, he would he would definitely not try to renegotiate it. He would try to go back to the original agreement. But with Biden, I'm not so sure. So we'll see. It's thing is very disappointing that, uh, as I say, there was a possibility for a breakthrough. Because if Trump had said, I'm going to go negotiate with some Iranian officials, it would have shocked everybody and no one would have known what to think. And it would have been funny to see all the peaceniks suddenly trying to make excuses for why it's wrong for him to go talk to them. And then to, funny to see, likewise, Republicans who've cheered every war in places they can't even pronounce explaining why this one's okay for him to talk to would have been great to see. And unfortunately, we didn't, we didn't get it. Um, well, you know, let me, let me ask, you know that oh, yeah, he, did, he did, in fact, uh, uh, make it clear that he wanted to negotiate with Iran back in September, if I remember correctly, although I may, have, I may be off slightly. Um, last late summer or early fall, um, he, he did send signals to the Iranians. But at that point, the Iranians were not interested because they didn't believe that anything uh, really could come out of this. And they were probably right. Yeah. Uh, but, but, he, but he has had inclination direction already, no doubt about that. Uh, but, but the other point that I want to make very quickly, I know we don't have any time here, is that uh, the Pentagon is undoubtedly in favor of trying to find a way out, out of this. They do not want to go to war with Iran. That is a, uh, that is a big, big silver lining here. Or, or it's, a, it's a big uh, break on this, uh, thankfully. I, I keep hearing that from everybody. For sure. It, it, I mean, the, the pressure for war, the, the desire to take chances – about a war with Iran, it's all coming from political sources that are aligned with Israel. I mean, it, it is the, the single source of, of pushing the United States in the direction of confrontation with Iran now. Uh, I, I think the politics of the United States are, are bifurcated now between those people who are ready to entertain, uh, at, at the very least, taking serious chances of going to war with Iran uh, because of alignment with Israeli interests and who don't want to have any part of it. So what would you say, let's say you've got 30 seconds, you're on Fox News, you've got 30 seconds and you're talking to a Fox News audience and they believe every caricature you could possibly imagine about Iran. What do you say in 30 seconds at least to make them think? I would say, you know, you have to take much more seriously the change in the objective military balance in the Middle East that has given Iran now the capability to exact far higher consequences, far higher costs on the United States if the United States were to decide to go to a military confrontation, a war effectively, with Iran. The United States could still win, no doubt about it. But Iran has far greater national interest at stake. And that means that they will take many more chances. They are ready to take uh, a great chance of high costs for a war than the United States is. And they will, uh, they are willing to get involved in a, a, a serious confrontation in order to force the United States to back away from its essentially illicit pressure on the Iranian economy. So we need to take that uh, much more seriously than we have. All right, that was a pretty good job. I gave you an impossible task, and I would say you 
<laughs> you rose to the occasion. All right, the book we've been talking about is The CIA Insider's Guide to the Iran Crisis, From CIA Coup to the Brink of War. I will link to it at tomwoods.com slash 1609, which is our episode number for today. And Gareth, tell me again if people want to follow your writing. I mean, I know you, you talk to Scott Horton quite a bit, but in terms of your writing, what would be sources they would look at? And I'll link to them. Well, I'm, 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 I'm elusive. I have a, a number of places where I've published, including the American Conservative, uh, Consortium News, Truth Out, Truth Dig. Occasionally, I've been in other places, but those are the four major ones. Okay, very good. So tomwoods.com slash 1609 is where you get an easy link over to uh, the book we've been discussing with its co-author, Gareth Porter. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I mean, it, it's tempting. If I'd given Scott Horton this job, he would have come back with a 700-page volume, <laughs> which is not to say we don't need that, but we need both, right? We need we need one that the average person will actually get through, and, and thank heavens you've done that. Thank you so much, Tom. All right, folks, if you enjoy and appreciate what I'm doing here on The Tom Woods Show, I would be delighted if you joined me as a supporting listener. You get many, many nice, juicy benefits as a supporting listener, not least of which is membership in the Tom Woods Show Elite, which is our wonderful group. But there are many other benefits as well. You get transcripts of all the interviews, you get discount codes, you get signed books, you get courses, all kinds of wonderful things. So check them out at supportinglisteners.com. Tomorrow, John Tamney from Real Clear Markets comes back. He's got a book on how everybody's wrong. The liberals are wrong and the conservatives are wrong. So that's right up our alley. So check that out uh, tomorrow, episode 1610. I'll see you then. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free. And we'll see you next time. Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.